We reached the top of the climb as the sun set and the temperature dropped 30 degrees. I don't really know, but it dropped significantly very quickly. This was March. Canadian Rocky Mountains on the Icefields Parkway. It's seriously cold, it's serious wilderness, it's very dangerous. We knew that going into it, except for we were unprepared to spend the night exposed. That was a fatal mistake. I'm Peter Panagor. I grew up outside of Boston, Massachusetts in a city called Marlboro. My dad was an architect. My mom had been a nurse. We had um, eventually five kids in the family. We kind of grew up between, I don't know, the roaring 50s and the crazy 70s. And lots of uh, cultural change happened in our family life as a result of all of that. My older sister, Andrea, she was part of the tune in, turn on, and drop out. And she ran away from home when I was 14. She was my, my beloved sister. And then suddenly I came home from school one day. I was a, a freshman in high school. And there was a note waiting on the kitchen table that she was leaving home. I didn't know what it meant, but our family slipped into turmoil overnight. And my dad went after my sister. And he searched and he hunted for her for months. It broke my family. Up until that point, my mom and my dad were super loving. We had a really great family. And because we had a Greek neighborhood near us, we had cousins and we had a great grandmother. And there was the, the community, the Greek dances and the food. And, and then my mother had cousins in town too. And all of that kind of ended when my sister vanished. And so then, of course, the first chance I got, I left home. I tried to drop out of school. My parents talked me out of it. And instead of dropping out of school, I went on national student exchange program, which is why I went to Montana in the first place. While I was at Montana State University in Bozeman, I did a lot of things. I joined the National Ski Patrol and I joined the outdoor club. I climbed in the mountains. I went backcountry skiing. So by the time spring rolled around, I decided, because I was a member of the outdoor club, that I would maybe find some trip to go on. So this fella posted up a flyer outside the door of the outing club on the bulletin board, said he was doing an eight-day backcountry ski and a one-day ice climb in British Columbia and Alberta, Canada. And I thought, well, this is perfect. So I called him up on the phone and I asked him, did you find somebody? He didn't. We met. We had uh, discovered that we had complementary skills. I was a first responder, ski patrol. He'd been trained as a certified ice climber. I'd done winter camping, he'd done winter camping. We decided we would do this. So off we went. Drove his car up to British Columbia, went backcountry skiing and snow caving in the middle of March in about 10 feet of snow. Had lots of adventures there. One was life-threatening our very first night, but we both used our survival skills to set ourselves up in such a way that we would be able to not freeze that night, that very first night. Um, and we learned to trust each other immediately. 
So we had this wonderful adventure, snow caving, that finished when we skied out and we went out to this one day ice climb. I'd been a backpacker. I'd climbed in a whole bunch of different ranges here in New England, a whole bunch of ranges in uh, Wyoming and in Montana, but I'd never done any ice climbing. I'd used a lot of ropes. I'd done free climbing and rock climbing and mountaineering, but never ice. And so ice was, I wasn't geared up for ice climbing. I had to go borrow or find any gear that I could use. And I kind of rigged myself up with uh, what I had available. I got good crampons. I got boots that were 1960 uh, leather ski boots that wouldn't flex. Um, I had wool and proper clothing and an ice axe and a hammer. And you're supposed to use two ice axes to climb. But I only had one. And I decided that I was young enough and strong enough and capable enough that I would climb with an axe and a hammer. And Tim agreed. Um, that we thought we could do this. And the thing about the axe is you can plant the axe and then let go and rest. The thing about the hammer is you can plant the hammer and never let go. You always have to hold on to it. You can't relax. So that meant to put a lot of stress on my forearms, uh, which meant that my muscles burned out much faster than everybody else's on this climb. Ice climbing is a hyper-focused state of be present where you are. You're not thinking about the future. You're not thinking about the past. You're thinking about exactly what you're doing, where you are, which is perfect for me. I love that hyper-focus space. And so we were both hyper-focused in. Our climb was uneventful other than my burning out of my muscles delayed our climb significantly so that by the time we reached the top of the climb, the sun was already setting. Many of the teams were already descending an hour, two hours before we even began to reach the top. The difficulty was that you can't just turn around and go back down. You can't say, oh, I've had enough. I'm just going to go walk down the trail and go to my car and drive away. There's no trail to walk down. You have to follow the route, and the route goes up, and then it goes across, and then it comes down. You can't just descend. We reached the top of the climb as the sun set, and the temperature dropped 30 degrees. I don't really know, but it dropped significantly very quickly. This was March Canadian Rocky Mountains on the Icefields Parkway. It's seriously cold. It's serious wilderness. It's very dangerous. We knew that going into it, except for we were unprepared to spend the night exposed. In our defense, no one else was prepared to spend the night exposed either. It was a day climb, and so you bring day climb gear with you. That was a fatal mistake. The sun set. Shivers began immediately. Hyperthermia began to set in within minutes. My jaw was clattering like a cartoon character. My hands were shaking. Uh, my body was twitching. And the, it, it got dark and the stars came out and we were terrified. Because of my ski patrol background, I knew how much time we had to get down before we succumbed. If we stayed where we were, we were going to die, no doubt in my mind. But we were five or 600 feet up in the dark on ice and rock. Tim hauled up the rope in the middle of this, and instead of laying the line, it became a tangled mess. Yeah. This is what happens when you get hypothermia. You begin to make mistakes. 
Tim picked up the length of the rope and he tied it around himself for our traverse. And I tied a length of rope. I gave myself some distance. I tied a length of rope around my own waist. I hauled the line and laid it over my shoulder. And we clanked and clattered because we're carrying ice screws and carabiners. So we begin this traverse. And this traverse is along this narrow ledge uh, with a five or 600 foot drop off. And we traversed across this with great care and caution because with every step we took, we felt our energy drain because we didn't have any more food with us. We drunk all our water and speaking was becoming difficult. When your jaw is clattering, it's very difficult to talk. We make this traverse with all of our focus to this first rappel and there's this small tree sticking out of the mountain. It's the only one. You're supposed to take your, a piece of this nylon flat webbing and tie it in this square knot and make this loop with it and wrap it around this tree and then take the, the climbing line and put it through the two loops and dangle it down so that when you get to the next bottom of the rappel, you can just pull this line right through. We decided that it was too cost too much money to buy webbing. We didn't want to lose this piece of webbing. So instead of putting the webbing around the tree, we decided against reason to put the rope around the tree and descend just on the rope because we figured we could pull it off when we got to the bottom. We repelled down and bounce and bounce. And then there's the space at which we're no longer bouncing. There was an, an inverted overhang of just empty space where you just slide down the rope to this next landing. I came down second and I, I got off the rope off of me and I grabbed the rope and I pulled it and, and it wouldn't come free. And I, I lifted myself up on it and it was stuck. And Tim stumbled over because now our coordination's beginning to wane. He grabs the line with me. We both pull. We can't get it loose. We both put all our weight on it and it won't come free. With We're bouncing on this thing and now we're in a panic. What's to do but reascend? I took the length of the climbing line and I wrapped it around my body and I lay down in the snow and I made it taunt going up as much as I could. Um, and Tim began to ascend up this empty space with no protection. And he got up some distance and my face was in the snow. He suddenly shouted out, I'm falling. And I kind of tried to roll out of the way a little bit. And I don't know how high up he had gotten, but as he fell, maybe his boot got caught in the, in the loop or something happened, but it jerked the rope free. And, the, and he fell down in the deep snow and I kind of rolled out of the way and he got back up again. And he was okay and I was okay. And we kind of re rejoiced. Okay, we got the rope, we can move on to the next one. And so we began our next traverse and we traversed over and now we're completely out of the snow and off the ice and we're just on rock. And in this mountain are two iron pins with epoxy and uh, iron rings with carabiners and straps and another carabiner to clip in for safety. This is the place where people come to climb and repel with safety and training. So now we're like, we're going to finally make it. We're one rappel down, one pitch to go. I took one end of the line and I tied it to my harness. It took the other end called the bitter end of a rope. The end of a rope is the bitter end. And you toss the bitter end out to the side, intending to then just pull the line down. But as I pulled the line down, it laid across this corner and somewhere up around the corner, it jammed in some kind of V. I don't know how it happened, but the line got caught. And on my very first pull, it jammed and I pulled it maybe a couple inches and I couldn't pull it any further. And I'm pulling on the rope and I can't get it free and I can't snap the line because the line is laid around this edge. And so now we're 
we're in serious trouble. I only have one end of the rope. We can't reascend. We can't go back up again. So now we're really seriously stuck. And hyperthermia continues to advance. And the night gets colder and colder. All night long, my terror had been increasing and increasing and increasing. And simultaneous to this, there was this other part of me that was driving clear down inside myself. And I, I, I feel like I was touching into my, my original mammalian mind of survival. When I realized no amount of willpower was going to drive me, instead of the fear rising to overtake me, I became calm and peaceful. I became accepting of my circumstance. I knew where I was and I knew what was going to happen. And I remember that I had been, this movie had been popular recently, uh, some years before, Little Big Man with Dustin Hoffman. And in it, there's this famous character. He's the old wise man of the tribe. And every day he gets out of his teepee and he says, today is a good day to die. And so I think to myself, tonight's a good night to die. It's so beautiful here. There are millions of stars, every single color you can imagine. And I can see the sizes of them. Never, you know, they're all kind of the same size where I live, but you can see sizes and brightnesses and colors and constellations and galaxies and, and, and the snow is reflecting off the mountains across the way and I could hear the river down below and, and it was so beautiful. And I knew that there was no escape. And around this time, this peace kind of settled inside of me, and I was sad. I was sad because my parents had lost my sister, and I was going to give my parents this other open wound. But there was nothing I could do about it. And this peace, despite that, in spite of that, settled inside of me, and then I got hot. Hypothermic people are often found naked because they get hot. And so I got hot and I unzipped my coat and Tim started yelling at me, don't unzip your coat, zip your coat back up. And I was like, F you, I'm not going to zip my coat back up because I'm hot. Meanwhile, I'm still pulling on the rope. And then I begin to fall asleep. But it wasn't like snuggle into my pillow and it was like a curtain would go down. Boom, the curtain goes down, I'm asleep, I, I, I have blackness, I am out, and then smack my helmeted head on the rock and jar awake, realize I'd been asleep, pull myself back up on my harness line, and yank on the rope again and repeat this process, I don't know how many times. And the last time after I fell asleep, I stood back up again, and as I stand up, I get the last thing with hypothermia, which is tunnel vision. There's this big black circle all the way around me at that distance, and it begins to close rather rapidly, like a stage set with a spotlight coming down to black. And I remember I'm looking around and looking up, and I'm looking over, and I'm looking down at the river, and, and it's going whoosh. And, it, and as it closes, I think to myself, oh, I'm blacking out again. I'm, but I'm thinking also, what's well, different this time? What is this? I'd never seen such a thing before. I expected, as this was closing, that it would be the darkness of the curtain fall and I'd be asleep, but this time when it went to black, I didn't fall asleep. I was awake. It goes to black and I'm unexpectedly still conscious. And I'm now confused. I don't know what's going on. And I don't understand anything. Why? Why? Where's the mountain? Why do I have consciousness? I feel like I have my eyes open, but I, all I see is darkness. And so all these thoughts are running through my head. And then this darkness gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's this crazy thing where it's 
pitch dark, but I can see in the dark. And way far, far in the distance is a pinprick of light, like a little pop and pow, light shines. And, and this is visibly as far away as the furthest star that I could see. But it's the only star in this dark heaven that I'm in. And it rushes toward me. It appears and it rushes toward me and it begins to fill this darkness with itself really rapidly, traveling an immense distance faster than the speed of light. And I see this thing coming toward me and it communicates with me telepathically, non-linguistically, no words, just download of information. And the, and the data was, I'm taking you. And it came with all power. It came with all knowledge. It came with all might. And it, I'm taking you. And I thought to myself, oh, no, you're not. I don't understand what's going on here. But I'm not going anywhere. And I, I dug down deep inside to put up this willpower that I had. But whatever willpower I had was zero compared to the immensity of the power of this entity. And then this like a portal I describe in my book is like a door opens, but I could, I could describe it as a waterfall appears. I could say that it was, uh, uh, well, that's the metaphors I'm using. This waterfall appears and it's made of light itself and it's a flow and, and on its surface, it's all starlight, all sparkle, colors I'd never seen before. It's the most compelling thing I'd ever witnessed. It's seductive. It's uh, drew me toward itself. And so all of my will vanished. All my self-understanding vanished. All I wanted was it. I often tell it in a certain sequence and a chronology that makes sense to my brain, but that's not the way it happened. It was all together. The first thing that happened to me is I went into a hell of my own making. This hell of my own making was all of the pain that I caused in my life. So I experienced all of the suffering that I gave away from the interior view and personal experience of every single person that I hurt in a chronological sequence in my life. I was in every one of them. Simultaneous to being inside of them and experiencing the pain that I had given them, I was outside of them as the person that I had been with all of my reasons and emotional status, choosing or emotionally reacting to cause that pain. So I had this, this bilocated experience and I felt the shame of the pain that I was causing, not just to the people, but to the divine self because of this immense love and purity that I was simultaneously perceiving from the unlimited creator who manifests all things. There's no thing that is everything. There was a voice the voice was speaking to me this whole time without language, and it was all around me and inside of me. I know you. I've always known you. Everything about you is known to me. I wasn't being judged. I was simply being shown myself. No matter what I did, I was beloved. And I got bigger and bigger and bigger in this unitive state of this oneness, and I am carried across this vast distance to sort of this edge. And at this edge, my consciousness is poked outside of this field of heaven. And I can see 
all of our universe. I can see all of our universe. I can see all of the galaxies and I can see beyond our universe. I can see the origin of our universe and beyond the origin of our universe, sort of above and below it and beyond it, I see all these other universes. And then my vision shifts and I see all of humanity, all of the earthly humanity. I see the earth like a, like a hologram and seven billion people on it. And the message to me is the same. They are all my beloved, every single one of them. Every, the amount of love that I love you with, this universe upon universe of love and creation and life that I give to you is the same that I have for every single person. And I see inside every single person. I see everybody not like in a dream or in a vision, like they're real. I see them as real human beings living their lives. Half the world is sleeping, people making love, people being tortured. There's wars and, and babies being born and, and people are bored and there's art and there's everything and everybody's doing everything. And inside every single person, I see inside them a golden light. And this golden light is gold itself. It is the purity of their divine original self and it's in every single person and they cannot see it inside each other and everything is covered with this thick foam that extends up above the atmosphere and it's so dense that no one can see the light inside anyone else as I can see it here making it plainly true that all of the love of all of these multiverses was for everybody and all of the planets and all of the galaxies and all not just for us like everything is particularly beloved And when I could hear this, then this inflood of love came to me. There was this beauty, joy, understanding, knowledge, bliss, paradise, awe, adoration, wholeness, light, and it expanded inside of me till I inflated like a balloon. I'm inside in this space of infinite comfort. I am the most comfortable I'd ever been in my life. And then this expanse contracted down to a less unitive state because now I remember my human life and I could see the suffering I, my parents became right apparent to me. I could see their whole lives of suffering that had accumulated and showed in their faces the disappearance of my sister, all of the years since, and I could see the suffering that they would endure were I to die. And I said, do I have to go? And the voice says, why? I say, because my parents lost my sister and there's this open wound. And if I go now, they're going to suffer the loss of me. And how cruel is that? The pain that I caused them in life already. And in the moment that I ask this question, I am swept across heaven. And as I go, I, I take on more substance and I'm being carried, the divine self and this angelic form, this light being, it comes with me. It brings me and I become denser and denser as I travel and in front of me, I have a million entry doors, all of them leading back to this body. But there's all of these doors presented in front of me and all of them are lives to choose to live. The divine voice says to me, choose and shows me all of these possibilities. And it says to me, pick me, pick the light. And I think, mm, now I kind of pick some of me. I want a little autonomy. I want a creativity. I want, some, I want a little freedom in my life. And so I, I don't 
quite pick the full light. I pick outside of it. And that's my door. And in I go, in that instant, that's where I am. And I speed down this tunnel. And in the process of this rematerialization, I become smaller and smaller and more compact and more crushed and tinier and tinier until I am uncomfortably compacted inside this divine being that then like an ice screw stabs me into this body and screws me in right into myself. And I have this experience of being like, like a genie in a bottle, like huge immense power teeny tiny living space and I'm forced inside this and I don't want it because entering into this thing was entering into suffering. I had no pain in heaven. There was only healing and wholeness and oneness and beauty and bliss. Pain wasn't forgotten. It didn't exist when I was in the unity state. Now I'm inside this thing and I'm, I'm like trapped in this container and I'm awake in this container like, what is this? Where was I? What's going on? And then every the kind of my brain comes back online and I begin to think and I begin to hear. Finally, I can hear screaming. I open my eyes and, and there's Tim bending down, looking at me, oh my God, he's crying. And he's, you were dead, you were dead. If you died, I was gonna die. And he pulls me up and he's crying and he's, he's, he's shouting and he's all upset and he's distraught. And all of this was somehow decoupled from me. I was somehow witnessing this. I, I could see myself in this place with this guy and I was somehow above it. I was looking down through my body into this world and I was two places at once. I was in this physical form, but I was also seeing it from an outside point of view. And he says, pull the rope. I pull the rope, it comes free. We descend, we treat for hyperthermia, we had the tent, had a chimney and a stove vent so we could fire up the stove inside the tent and we climb in our sleeping bags and we, we heat up water slowly. You know, we drink warm water, warmer water, warmer water, warm food, warmer food, hot food, hot water, finally bring our temperatures back up. Sometime around dawn, we go into the car and we turn on the heater and we sit in the car for a period of time. And I couldn't tell him what happened to me. I was afraid he wasn't gonna believe me. I didn't have any words to say it in the first place. I don't even understand what happened to me. So I said nothing. I began my long silence. And from that point on, I was a different person. That morning, we began our drive south. There were beautiful, a beautiful sunrise and there, there were silos and fields and colors and clouds and gorgeous Canadian countryside. And I, to me, was ugliness and darkness. I could see light behind it, but it was trapped away from me. It was like living in a two-dimensional space, like black and white, like a cartoon that flickered from the early 20s, and the sound's terrible, and, and there's space in between every frame. And all of it was just not pure light because of the mere materiality of its thingness compared to no thing, beauty, purity, love of ultimate infinity, the comparison of my experience was, what did I do? Why am I here? 
Now I'm stuck inside this thing. And because I saw myself relative to the size of the universe, I know my own insignificance. So why be here? I couldn't possibly live the same life I lived before after seeing what I saw, after experiencing it. All that I was left with was this longing desire, this light inside myself that says, this is me, seek me. And it was small in comparison to what I had. And so I decided to pursue it. But to do that, I had to change the course of my life. I had to learn how to dive inside myself. And I had to learn what the ancient wisdom was before me to understand where I might go. And in my world, it was people like Emerson and Thoreau and Blake and Coleridge and Wordsworth and a smattering of some of the Upanishads and some of the earlier Eastern writings. And so I chose my life of pursuit simultaneous with my life of silence. I practiced my interior practice, my meditation, my Kriya Yoga, and the more I got out of the way in my own interior life, the greater the light became inside of me, the easier it was to live through the light in the world to the light. But I also prayed every day, today is a good day to die. Today is my day. Take me home. I don't want to be here. I'm not needed here. I then came to understand that my living in the world has impact. My journey to seek that which I lost makes a radiance inside of me that lets me see the light inside the world more clearly. The more I see the light inside the world, the more I see it inside of other human beings, the more I know that they are like me. And that's a hallmark of a mystical experience is when your course changes toward love. I know how hard life can be. Everybody loses, everybody suffers. One of the benefits of living an interior life especially when you're on the edge of despair and all you want to do is go home, is that there's a place of strength there, your continual original self. The greatest strength that I have is knowing I'm going to die, knowing who I am, where I came from, knowing where I'm going. This gives me this superpower to stay here because I know the ending of the story. The story ends for everyone with goodness. If you want to experience the divine, you have to clear the table. And that is a meditative life. There's lots of kinds of meditation in the world. Some of it's flow form, Tai Chi or yoga. Some of it's sitting form, Zazen or centering prayer practice. Cezanne painted a meditation every time. Rumi, he wrote poetry and he, 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 he danced. All of it has to do with mental focus, breath, and the end of self. What meditation is, is the stopping of the thought process, the 
lie of who you are. You're always going to go home. Nobody gets out of here without dying. That is the eventuality. And in the meantime, knowing that, know that you still can find a way out. And that's in.